Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm Doug Berkey, Executive Director of Mitchell Institute. Here on Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DoD, industry, and other subject matter experts to explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. If you like learning about aerospace power, you're in the right place. So to our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thanks so much for joining us. And as a reminder, if you like what you hear, please do us a favor and follow our show and give us a like and leave a comment so we can keep charting the trajectories that matter most to you. We talk about it all the time here at the Aerospace Advantage, but America is demanding more from its national security space enterprise than ever before. From a threat perspective, the U.S. used to operate a broad range of satellites and their corresponding ground enterprises without having to worry about adversaries targeting them. And this is a powerful system. Think about it. Tremendously capable intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance satellites, navigation technology like GPS, weather satellites, a global communication architecture, and a lot more. These technologies, they revolutionized our military strategies, operational concepts, and tactics at really core levels. And they also reshaped a lot of the civilian economy. But guess what? Our adversaries took note, and they decided they wanted to develop their own similar capabilities, but they also wanted to hold ours at risk. While at the same time this was occurring, the military services and the security community as a whole, they were demanding radically more powerful space capabilities. Everyone simply wanted more from space. And this drove really hard technical challenges, and we needed to deliver solutions. So bottom line, this launched a wave of generational change, and we're still seeing it play out today. Nothing is more visible than the creation of the Space Force and Space Command. It also led to a set of conditions that saw commercial industry enter the national security space enterprise by directly providing solutions in the operational realm. So I'm talking about satellites, ground stations, software, and highly trained personnel that are performing national security space missions in support of the Space Force, Space Command, and other government customers. This is a huge paradigm shift. So that's the crux of today's episode. We're going to talk about the rise of private actors in the national security space world, why this developed, how they operate, challenges and opportunities involved in this equation, and key considerations you should think about as you track this important trend. With that, I'd like to introduce Tim Ryan of our Mitchell team. As you all know, he's a senior space fellow at our Space Center of Excellence. Doug, as always, it's great to be here. No, I appreciate it, man. We've also got Evan Rogers, who is CEO of True Anomaly. They're a technology company operating at the intersection of spacecraft, software, and AI to develop solutions for space security and sustainability. And prior to co-founding True Anomaly, Evan served as an officer in the Air Force for nearly a decade. He led teams of space operators, scientists, and engineers to develop and evaluate the operational performance of military systems and tactics designed to protect U.S. and allied assets in orbit. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. I appreciate you being here. And then finally, we've also got Steve Kate. He's Senior Director of Azure Space at Microsoft. Now, he focuses on providing cloud and space technologies with the partner ecosystem. And I just want to point out here, and most of you already know this, but Steve is an incredibly significant figure in the national security space community. He was a key actor here standing up the Space Force and Space Command from his role in the House Armed Services Committee, and he later served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Space Policy at DOD. So, Steve, always great to see you. Doug, thank you for the kind words and for having me. It's terrific to be here on your show and alongside my friend and colleague in the space industry, Evan Rogers. So, Tim, let's kick it off with you. I want to cut to the chase of why we're looking at this issue, and it's all about the threat and 
delivering necessary mission effects. Chief of Space Operations, General Saltzman, he's outlined a co- operational concept called competitive endurance, and it comes down to keeping the United States ahead of our adversaries. And we want to ensure that they're never tempted to try and strike first in space. This is core to basic deterrence theory. So could you help flush out this concept? What are the fundamentals underpinning it, and what does success look like? Yeah, no, I appreciate that, Doug. So it's essentially, it's a three-part framework. It's for this designed so that the service has a roadmap to be able to both deter conflict in space while preparing for the fight if that deterrence does happen to fail. I think that the, when we start to take a look at it and we look at the words that the CSO has put out in his C-notes and as well as in various talks that he's given around the country, he frames it as to be able to capture the state of competition that we're currently in with China. That aligns, if you take a look at our national strategies, it aligns very well with the focus on we're in a great power competition. Now, what he wants in this competitive endurance is let's stay in that competitive realm versus being able to go from a competitive realm into conflict. It's a way to be able to keep a balance, if you will. We want to be able to have constant competition versus conflict. Now, the very reason that the Space Force was established, General Saltzman has said this a a couple times, and I love this quote, and I've used it in different things I've written. But he says, quote, our service was established to contest and when directed, control the space domain on behalf of the joint force. The responsibility to fight for space superiority with the military force is why we are a service and not a functional community. I think that's right at the heart of exactly what he's trying to get at is being able to prepare warfighters in this environment in case the deterrence does fail. Now, these three tenets are underpinned by what he calls avoiding operational surprise or being able to have that space domain awareness to actually understand what is up there, but also what their intent is and what they're doing. Talks about denying first mover advantage. That's having resiliency, disaggregating our missions in the orbits, being able to build that all in. And finally, having responsible counter space campaigning. As you know, Doug, and I know that Steve and, and Evan both know, this is kind of a change for a space community to actually start to talk about counter space and actually having a campaign in that. And so those kind of underpin and is the campaign that we look at when we talk about competitive endurance. I appreciate that. So Evan, Steve, I want to bring into the conversation, what's your take on the environment right now? I tried to explain it in the intro. It's a combination of threat plus a demand for radically more powerful space capabilities, but am I capturing that correctly? Yeah, Doug, I think you are, and I would add a couple of challenges and give a, give a great summary. I'll add kind of two core challenges that I think are that are underpinning this, this problem that General Saltzman is articulating here. I would characterize doctrine and policy as being one of the first challenges. And doctrine and policy are always trailing indicators in warfighting. And because they're trailing indicators, this could be one of the most critical challenges in the Space Force's early years. The Space Force has to find a way in peacetime competition and competitive endurance through modeling simulation and probably with partnership with industry to speed the learning cycles and mature the conceptual framework which we look at conflict, through which we look at conflict that extends in the space. And I think one of the, there's a trusty theorist who's useful here, John Boyd, often misunderstood um, that can help us shed some light on the issue. The central intellectual dy- dynamic of the OODA loop that we all know and love is that second O orientation. The biases and 
the really the frameworks through which we view the battle space, if wrong, will trend towards defeat. So how do we create a mature orientation framework at the strategic, operational, and tactical level, instantiate that in doctrine without fighting a conflict that extends into space? And then the second challenge, I think, is the readiness of the defense industrial base, which I think we'll talk a little bit about later on, so I'll just introduce it. It's very difficult for the Department of Defense and the intelligence community to tell industry what to go build, at what scale, at what speed, without an understanding of how we want to fight, win, and deter in the space domain. The closest historical analogy here is probably the buildup in World War II, which was a new age of conflict that we were not ready for, and that ended up opening really what was needed, which was a mobilization effort. And I think we're probably, what we probably need in the space domain is a mobilization effort of the defense industrial base, but not one that kicks off a broader scale conflict. So those are the, those are the two things that I'd add. I'll build upon that. And it's, first I'll mention, it's so exciting to see General Saltzman and his vision coming through in new concepts like this and really pushing the dialogue. What I'd build upon the comments that Evan and Tim made is pulling it up at that strategic level and where I lived as a policy official before coming to industry a few years ago is the fundamental fact of the matter is space is changing dramatically. We're absolutely at an unprecedented time. And on one hand, you touched on the threat landscape that's changing. But on the other hand, there's tremendous opportunity. And there really hasn't been excitement, I don't believe, in this domain since you go back to the Apollo era and landing, man landing on the moon. And there's really any number of metrics you can pull to, to make this statement, whether it's the number of satellites being launched, the number of countries that are engaging in space, the investment dollars, the government dollars, or the different industries that are now getting involved in space. So I think when we look at this concept of competitive endurance, it's taking into account the strategic environment that's in. And the strategic environment is one of growing threats, but also tremendous opportunity that presents itself to the Space Force. Now, I really appreciate what you both had to say there. So from a macro level, how does private industry fit into the equation? On one hand, industry has been core to national security space from day one. I think what we're seeing playing out now is different. So what are your thoughts on those dynamics, both from a demand side and then how you're seeing yourselves enter as part of the solution? So this has been an interesting experience for me in that the majority of my career over 18 years was on the government side, but now coming into the industry the past few years and seeing life on this side. And as you said, Doug, the industry is absolutely critical to this equation. And that hasn't changed. Really, industry's always been critical to the work that the government is doing because generally speaking, the government doesn't build the capabilities. They look to the industrial base. Now, what is changing is first the rate of innovation and the innovation and changes that technology is driving this industry is happening so rapidly. And another aspect of that change is really the government 
Previously, for space was driving that that technology innovation, but it's flipped, and it's flipped now to a lot of the innovations actually happening in the commercial sector. Not all; there's still tremendous innovation on the government side, but the commercial sector is blazing ahead in new ways. And what that does is that leads to a fundamental relook of standard approaches that are done for. Space acquisitions and development. And what I mean by that is a traditional approach of the government taking an extended period of time, defining requirements, putting out those requirements for bid, having contractors then build those systems, is much different because now they can leverage what's happening in the industry, buy it as a service, and focus their resources in really the unique areas that only that they can do. I would just add a couple of points. I would echo what Steve said, which is, I think industry has both an opportunity and a responsibility to speed and influence the demand side. But there's a challenge because industry is facing kind of sparse requirements from the government. And that's an okay thing. And it's good for industrial competition. But we're sort of building the airplane conceptually while we fly it. As I said before, a lot of the fundamental precepts that exist in other domains for how we want to fight and what victory looks like and what deterrence looks like. They just don't exist in the space domain. There's a lot of uncertainty about the architecture and the system of systems that need to be built. And so instead, what industry is being asked to do, and I think what is core to what we're trying to accomplish at True Anomaly is to work from the first principles of deterrence and conflict and say, let's use private capital and let's leverage IRAT and let's take responsibility for technical and conceptual risk reduction and be a good partner for the space force and intelligence community and field the solutions that we think are going to be important and do that really side by side and in deep collaboration with the space force. And that collaboration has to be not just at the program office level, but crucially with operators, with policymakers, with the intelligence community to try to get a whole picture and fill out that sparse matrix of requirements into something that looks like a robust ecosystem of capabilities. So Evan, before starting True Anomaly, you were working space issues in the Air Force, and that was before we had a Space Force. Did you see doctrine and general policy priorities anticipating these challenges? As I said before, Doug, and this is an important question, policy and doctrine are always trailing indicators, and in some ways by design. But to Steve's point, because industry is leading the charge in the fielding and advancement of technology, you see a push instead of a pull. And that is putting a lot of pressure on, I think, policy and doctrine to really play with new ideas, right? And to do that quickly and to do that responsibly so that we don't end up in a situation where technology is completely outpaced in an unrecoverable way, the pace of policy development. The nation is contending with this now with artificial intelligence, right? Space technologies, particularly those that are in the family of space protection systems and space domain awareness systems, have implications as significant as artificial intelligence, but probably not as significant as artificial intelligence, but with some pretty heady consequences, I'll say, if sort of policy and doctrine doesn't keep up. And I think, again, just to put a finer point on the doctrine piece, doctrine is the conceptual framework that forces use to orient themselves to the strategic issues and the battle space. So it's very difficult to know, again, what to build until you have the instantiation of joint doctrine in the specifics of space operations and space conflict. The set of 
standards of procedures, measures of performance, measures of effectiveness, control measures, timelines, engagement timelines, the language that we use to talk about space conflict and coordinate and organize forces on the battlefield so that a lieutenant can look to another lieutenant or an enlisted person and have confidence that they're looking at the battle space the same way. Doctrine does that. Doctrine is that glue. And there's a lot of work to be done in peacetime to make sure that we have that for a conflict. In many ways, it reminds me of the interwar period where we had general thoughts of how we thought new industrial age technologies were going to apply, but hadn't really been put to the test yet. And so there are theories in play quite often, and a lot of them played out, but there are others that had to get adjusted when we hit World War II, but it's a very dynamic period. So one thing to note about the Space Force is just how quickly both it and the space domain as a whole have changed in recent years. So, Tim, what are some of the most important developments our audience should track? Yeah, Steve, you had mentioned that this is a unprecedented time of change. That's 100% for sure. Let's just take a look. I'm, you know, split it up between the words that we throw around congested and contested. Let's just look at how congested it's getting. In the last 15 years, 53 nations have began being a space-faring country. That's increasing satellites on orbit by 500%. That has moved from 15 years ago, well over 50% of the active satellites at that point in time, where it was heavily skewed towards military satellites and not commercial. Today, well over 50% of the active satellites are commercial. That can have a little bit of a difference as a look at the domain. This is actually just what is actually being, that needs to be tracked. Now, that's a totally different situation when we start to talk about things in a contested environment. That demands the space domain awareness that we talked a little bit about earlier. That's understanding the threat, maintaining a custody on that threat, and then being able to do something about that threat before it actually takes you out. This is everything from proximity operations that could endanger U.S. assets or create a, quote, soft kill by taking it out of mission. Kinetic on-orbit threat capabilities to capabilities that would enter into orbit from terrestrial. Finally, let's not forget, Russia has shown us their cyber forces have demonstrated the ability to successfully attack commercial SATCOM capabilities and take it out of mission. So all this is happening around the same time that the Space Force is transitioning their own capabilities, those capabilities that were designed for a peaceful environment, transitioning into combat-capable forces and combat-capable capabilities. Now I get it. And those are all key factors to consider when we're talking about operating in space. So, Evan, how does it all impact the doctrine space forces continuing to develop as Guardians seek to keep pace with the evolving environment? And we touched upon it earlier, but this is really important. Yeah, I think the task here, we did touch on it earlier, I think the task that the Space Force has is to is twofold. There's just some fundamental research that has to be done in, in doctrine. And that doctrine has to tie together individual action and individual system action all the way into a set of higher order effects. And the place to start is other services doctrine. The place to start is in joint doctrine. The answers for how to fight are mature. We've been fighting as a species for millennia. And contemporary conflict looks a certain way, and it's instantiated in other services doctrine. We can draw lessons from other services and other domains, and we can abstract those and say, what does a flank look like in the space domain? What are the control measures that control the flow of forces and information in other domains that could be relevant to the space domain? And then we need to play with those ideas on controlled ranges. We need to play with them in modeling and simulation environments. 
And we have to spread that education across not just every new guardian that comes into the force, but also at the senior levels. The senior leaders know how to get the most in terms of performance out of their junior officers and junior enlisted people. Yeah. So, Steve, I noted it in the intro, but you're a Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Space Policy while Space Force is being founded. Can you talk about what that experience is like and how this combined set of circumstances regarding the threat environment and drive for more space capabilities fed into the creation of the service? Sure. Thanks, Doug. So it was a terrific experience, and I consider myself extremely fortunate to have what I believe really ended up being a unique view in the creation of Space Force. And I say that because my career started as an active duty officer, but then I found myself on Capitol Hill in 2011 working for the House Armed Services Committee. And over the years then after that, then going up to the Pentagon to be the DASD for space policy. And the history of the Space Force actually goes back further than most people realize, because a lot of people think that it goes back the past few years when the discussion energized, but it actually goes back to 2000 and the Rumsfeld Commission. And there was an unlikely set of events from 2000 all the way up to 2019 that created the Space Force. And frankly, we could probably do another podcast on all the stories and events associated with that creation. But the key points along the way from the Rumsfeld Commission to an Allard Commission in 2007 to 2007, 2008, to the GAO doing a study in 2016, which really started energizing Congress, saying that, there's been multiple studies that have been done and regarding space organization and management, and we don't have it quite right. And if you go back to a quote of the Rumsfeld Commission, essentially saying that we're at risk of a potential space Pearl Harbor, and the Allard Commission saying that there's no one in charge of national security space, but all these studies were done, and it led to Congress really starting to push that, and in particular, then-chairman of the sub subcommittee of strategic forces, Mike Rogers, Congressman Mike Rogers of Alabama, alongside uh, his colleague, who was then the ranking member, Jim Cooper of Tennessee, and a Republican and Democrat worked together arm in arm in that, and they ended up being ahead of their time, but the whole concept got new wind then from President Trump. And then the rest really became history. And I think it is such an example of our country taking a strategic step at just the right moment. And you see all this view on the news of divisiveness and across the political aisle and the different battles that are done. This is an example of both sides of the political aisle, Republicans and Democrats, both sides of Capitol Hill, the House and the Senate, both sides of Pennsylvania Avenue, the Capitol and the White House. And then you could say both sides of the Potomac with the, the Pentagon then, and then downtown DC, all working together to make a change for our nation. And many people 
were in, involved in making that happen. And to go to your point, the combined set of circumstances, you know, what I hope to leave listeners with, and actually somebody on my team, Audrey Schaefer, when I was in the Pentagon, summarized this, I believe, so well when people say, why is a space force needed? That was always the hardest question when this was debated in this topic of creating a space force was debated greatly. But ultimately, I'll never forget her saying the reason for a space force is that space has become so important to our nation that we now need an armed force to protect and defend it. And that goes to the things that Tim was saying and Evan was saying of having trained and ready people, the equipment and the doctrine and operations for employment. So what I'd leave you with on the creation of the Space Force in, is a message that major change can happen and people within the force now need to pick up that mantle of change. Now, and I was fortunate enough to be in D.C. in various positions watching this unfold. And, you know, it's really rare when the puzzle pieces align and you see that sort of seismic change aligned to demand signals. So it, it really was amazing, as you just described there. So this one's for all of you. I mean, we're fortunate that the U.S. hasn't had to engage in direct conflict involving space. But case studies emerging when it comes to Ukraine. Zelensky and his forces, they're harnessing a lot of space capabilities, and a lot of them are commercial. So any lessons learned that you're seeing emerge from this experience? What does it mean for the Space Force and Space Command? So... This is a really interesting one, and I'm going to speak a bit from a related perspective of space, and I'm going to speak to cyberspace. And when you think about the first shots fired in Ukraine, we all remember those pictures that were coming across as the Russian military poured across the Ukrainian border in February 2022. But and this was a combination of troops and tanks and aircraft and cruise missiles, but the first shots were in fact fired the day before. And that was with a cyber weapon and that was launched against computers in Ukraine. And that reflects the technology of today and the importance. And when you talk about lessons learned, the importance of digital resiliency and one of the things that happened in Ukraine is they actually had all their data in the in in country and they recognized the threats that were building up before the conflict actually started and moved their data out into into the cloud to give them that digital resiliency. Now, another aspect of this when you talk about lessons learned, it goes to having that threat intelligence. And one of the interesting things that I've learned since being out is actually the tremendous amount of intelligence or information or indications and warnings that does reside in the commercial sector. So Microsoft, for example, has trillions of signals that are analyzed every day on the threat surface of, uh, of cyberspace. And the lesson learned there is working across the both with the government and industry and then, of course, with coalition partners to make sure that we're on the same page to prepare for these threats. Absolutely. That's great setup on, on that. I think that when you look at the value that satellite communications in this conflict, that what it's provided, it leaves no doubt how important it is. You have to look at the links to the ground stations, the on-orbit assets. Those are all now high-value targets. 
So to build upon, Steve, what you just talked about is you take a look at the way that Starlink reacted to attempted attacks by Russia by quickly uploading a new line of code and suddenly that attack is not effective anymore. Again, when you start to get after that based off of the intelligence and you can move that even further to the left, that is a key lesson that must be learned and a model that I think that the Space Force and industry must go after. When you just are talking about jamming and increasing power and getting into that game, when you actually insert a new line of code, you have now taken the adversary's weapon out of the fight and kept yours in mission. And so I think that that's a very important aspect to go after. I think that when you look at the Space Force's movement towards supra coders and having active cyber defense teams, that probably is laying some of the groundwork to be able to get after that as we respond to those threats. Yeah, and I would just add that we touched on a couple of these things, but the conflict in Ukraine really raised awareness among adversaries and the general public alike about really just how integral commercial space assets are to global security and space sustainability. And this, this increased awareness of the value and the need for commercial assets also comes with a new attack surface and an increased vulnerability. What happens in space directly affects national security operations across other theaters of operations and across other domains. As General Saltzman has noted, in addition to this, what, there's also sort of an interesting facet of the domain. What's distinctive about it is that there's no demarcation of a zone of conflict, right? It's all-encompassing and effects that happen in the space domain are also happening side by side with commercial operations that could be monitoring forest fires or contributing to other humanitarian activities. And this puts a spotlight on the important policy questions that I think we need to contend with as a nation. Like who's responsible for monitoring and protecting commercial space assets? Are there commercial solutions to assist in monitoring protection? What are the limitations of utilizing those assets in conflict? Would an attack on a high-value commercial space asset be considered an act of war? Is that, a, is that an actually an opportunity that adversaries want to take because it's not a shot as in targeting a national security, government-owned, government-operated system? Who's liable for those kinds of costs? And what's the responsibility and how quickly do we need to respond and show our cards should an attack happen to disable a commercial space operator? The final point is that the conflict really, and Tim, both Tim and Steve touched on this, but the, con- the final point is that the conflict really reinforced and even made more visceral the coupling between technology and conflict. And we need to embrace, I think we have no choice, but to embrace the relationship between changing tactile doctrine and emerging and changing technology. For example, the proliferation vis-a-vis Starlink may negate weapon systems that are single-shot, single-target systems, right? Destroying a single Starlink satellite may not have an outsized effect on the Constellation's functionality if you do that with a direct-ascent anti-satellite weapon that costs tens of millions relative to a Starlink satellite that is probably less than a million. But it didn't make the desirability of targeting those systems any less appealing for Russian forces. The attack surface just changed. So one thing for us to think about and internalize is really how we should be designing for a changing attack surface to try to move the sands under the adversary's foot, but also as those sands move for us, how do we embrace the coupling between technology and doctrine and have that be a feature and not just a bug and not just contributing to fog and friction and warfare. Evan, building off your point, when we routinely read about these things in the Wall Street Journal or Washington Post or wherever, 
and the policymakers are reading those same headlines too. I think that's when we're seeing a lot of movement here on these topics because we can't ignore them. I mean, it's right there and it's so consequential. If we look at General Staltzman, he's described success in space domain as perpetual competition. And he's explained there's no victory in space because if you do it right, you never fight. This obviously ties to some core tenets of deterrence theory that we've all worked out in terrestrial domains. But what's your take on this and how does it align with your organizational missions? Yeah, thank you for the question. I think Steve will have a lot more to say on this than I will, but I'll just touch on the organizational piece of this because I think it it goes back to the point about the responsibility that the defense industrial base has to contributing to deterrence. If you look at this, this has been said in other forums, and I can't recall who said this, but one of the reasons that the United States puts forward such a strong deterrence against conventional conflict against an airport adversary isn't merely the forces that are fielded, but it's also the industrial capacity to build and innovate. And the industrial base today really isn't well suited to iterate into a new domain that is capitally intensive. We've dealt with the having to deal with a new domain vis-a-vis cyber, but the cost of entry into developing mature cyber capabilities is substantially less than developing mature space capabilities in it and the ecosystem that allows you to prosecute and respond to conflict and ultimately deter conflict. So it's a different way of thinking about investment by the private sector. It's a different way of thinking about risk taking by the government. The DOD needs to likely partner with industry in new and potentially riskier ways, even though this is anathema to the way that we think about fielding space capabilities. We want certainty, right? But with the rise of less expensive space technologies, it's possible to iterate quickly and to take relatively inexpensive investments, but that will appear to be big at first, but generally will that cost curve will decrease over time. And we can talk a little bit more about that later when it comes to, I think, what startups face in this space. So True Anomaly was really designed to be that fast-moving industrial partner and to do its part for the nation to mature a defense industrial capacity to respond to threats and contribute to a deterrence. Doug, you had mentioned General Saltzman's quote of there's no victory in space because if you do this right, never fight. And it does remind me, and if I put my policy hat back on, it reminds me of a quote that General Hayton used to often say. And he would say that there is no war in space. War is war. And there is an extension into space. It may begin or extend into space, but it's ultimately tied to life here on Earth. And a essentially disagreement between nations that are uh, addressing their political differences, potentially through conflict. Now, the goal is to address those differences through peaceful means. That is always the objective of what you're trying to do. Now, if you're thinking about deterring that conflict, as you said, it is a calculus of cost and benefit. And if I now pivot to to now my Microsoft hat, 
very happy to be at a company that supports the United States government and supports the United States Space Force with the best technologies and supporting those institutions that protect the democracies around the globe and protect global peace and security. And you, you say, how does this how does this align with our organizational mission? And the mission at Microsoft is to empower every person and organization on the planet to achieve more. And that's how you know we look at now what we're doing with space. How do we bring space technologies together with cloud computing together with partner companies like True Anomaly to then empower customers like the Space Force to achieve even more. And I think ultimately that does contribute to deterrence because you want that strategic competitor to be able to look then and say, that's not the fight they want to take on. I appreciate that, Stephen. You're reminding me a lot of General Chilton when he talks about if you want to understand military operations in space, just look at the other domains. So many of the core elements do exist in other places, whether it's situational awareness or, or other elements that are so important. So no, I really appreciate that. So Space Force is both blessed and cursed with having access to a massive wealth of new, incredible technology. And this is great, but it also presents a challenge of trying to keep up with the pace of change. This is bleeding edge stuff. So Steve, how do you view the Space Force's approach to fostering innovation compared to the other services? So the Space Force Space Systems Command, General Grootline, who's a tremendous leader there, along, of course, with Secretary Cavelli and under the leadership of Secretary Kendall, have put out this approach called Exploit by Build. And essentially what they're getting at with this is for the Space Force to exploit what's available, to buy what they can, and only build what they must. And I think this is a great approach, and it's the right framework. Now, the challenge, of course, will come into turning that into execution. And time will tell as they're making these changes to their architectures and organizations like the Space Development Agency and Space Systems Command, SWAC and DIU, are coming together in different ways to embrace new innovation. And if I've learned anything in the time now in industry is I've learned that it takes partnerships. And it takes partnerships to get these leading edge technologies into the hands of the warfighters. And whether it's AI, ground stations, cloud or data platforms, it's really the ability to work together because the Space Force has such unique operating environments and security requirements that they need to address. So when I look at the acquisition approach that they're moving out on, I definitely support their efforts that they're doing. And I think fundamentally, what I would say to my old colleagues on the Hill is to lean forward as much as the Hill is comfortable in allowing them flexibility and allowing them flexibility to move rapidly to address the challenges and also take advantage of these opportunities in front of them. Those are really great insights. And Amy, you've seen it, 
from now kind of a 360 view. So I really appreciate that. So given that we've got a lot of pressing problems here and now, I mean, where is commercial space industry best equipped to fill critical capabilities in, let's just say, the next two years? Really, the area I would hone in on is data. It fundamentally comes down to how you are moving data rapidly, how you're doing it in a resilient fashion. And when I say that, how you're moving it through space systems in multiple orbits, multiple bands, multiple vendors, and then when it's on the ground, how you're moving it through a global infrastructure, and then it's being able to process that data and being able to store and organize and bring tools like artificial intelligence and machine learning. And there's amazing new capabilities that are coming out. For instance, at Microsoft, we've got a partnership with OpenAI, and it brings tremendous large language models to now but even to the ability of government customers to be able to access that technology in government clouds. So when, when I look at your question on, you know, what critical capabilities I see fundamentally leveraging these space systems and with a strong focus on how you are going to use the data and massive amounts of data and being able to move that and harness it is really the big area. That's incredible. I mean, it wasn't long ago. It would have been science fiction, some of what we're talking about, yet it's here and now. So whenever we talk about techno adoption and defense acquisition with startups, we frequently hear about the Valley of Death. So Evan, could you outline for our listeners what this is and how True Anomaly is working to overcome it? What should others in this area know about the process? This is such an important question with implications for the entire defense industrial base, but also implications for some of the things that Steve was talking about with respect to the ability to adopt technologies that are coming out of a fast-moving industry. And many of those great ideas and new technologies are coming out of startups. The Valley of Death is the time and space that it takes to transition a product that you intend to sell to the Department of Defense from a prototype and demonstration to a revenue-generating, self-sustaining, and consistently funded product. The value of depth is wider and riskier for domains that require a large amount of capital. As we all know, space is perhaps one of the most expensive domains to enter into. The, The history of space startups and space technology development is a trail of relatively high profile failures and collapses with some strategic impact. The DOD is incentivized because of these experiences to disaggregate risk across a number of companies and generally incentivized to go towards the the, the large system integrators that don't face capital shortfalls or don't face potential where the failure of a product doesn't mean the failure of a company, if that makes sense. I totally so, so what other founders, what, the strategy to take here and the strategy that so far we've been successful implementing with Bernamon is the same advice I would give to, to other founders. You can take a concentrated approach with your go-to-market strategy, or you can take a diffuse approach, which means you can find one senior champion, align the user, and align the funds, 
or you can do this in parallel, depending on if you have the size of the team and the sophistication of the of your capture strategy to, to do it. What we've at, what we've decided to do at True Anomaly is take an approach of solving of aligning our technology development, our product development to what General Saltzman has articulated as the most significant challenges of the Space Force. The, the next piece is the team has to be driven and the customer has to be bought into a demonstration and all the better if that demonstration is a fly-up. So just like space is the history of a number of high-profile failures and collapses, it is also a story of a lot of great PowerPoint charts. It's very difficult to demonstrate. It's very capitally intensive to demonstrate viable capabilities. So there tends to be this sort of piecemeal approach where you demonstrate by analysis that the capability is viable, hoping to seek some government investment so that you can go raise more private capital. The strategy that we've opted to take is to raise a substantial amount of private capital and prove the system end to end, because we think that is going to be there. There is a, there's just something about seeing a spacecraft fly. There's something about seeing a spacecraft come off the ring and use it and get images off of that satellite that says so much more than PowerPoint can or a simulation can. Now, I appreciate that. And Steve, obviously working in Azure space, you have a pretty good sense of capabilities that the commercial sector can bring to bear and support a space force. Where do you see these public-private partnerships going in the future? So... I think that the public-private partnerships are going to deepen. And I would tell you that I believe so deeply that the future of the Space Force's architecture is a hybrid space architecture. And it's one where it's commercial, government, and allied space systems. And the ability to put the power of those different sectors together in the fingertips of the guardians is the future and being able to do it on a secure cloud platform. Now that is actually a program that's happening today with DIU and the Space Force and AFRL. And it's starting off as demonstrations and really the from there, the, the challenge will then be ensuring that you go from demonstrations to scaled global capability. Now, the other piece of this aside from the programs of record or the actual programs is the engagement. And when you talk about public-private partnerships, I call out just a couple forums that I have found since I've been in industry just incredibly insightful and important. One of those is the Space ISAC, the Information Sharing and Analysis Center, which brings together the private sector on space cybersecurity threats and then works hand in partnerships with the government. Another one, and kind of maybe at a deeper technical level, is an organization called DIFI, D-I-F-I. It's all about digital intermediate frequency interoperability. And not to get too technical here, but you can almost think about this as if you imagine when you go travel the world and you have these different power plugs and you don't always have the interoperability. I don't know if you've ever fried one of your electronics when you went to a foreign country or you didn't necessarily have the right plug. What Diffie is doing is it's creating standards across the industry. And in that particular case, it 
aligned across an IGLE standard called VITA 49. And it doesn't necessarily advantage one company or another, but it gets the industry and the government on common standards so you can have more interoperability. So the government can then achieve things like the hybrid space architecture that I spoke about. Uh, That is interesting stuff. Now, readiness is a key part of every services mission. The actual mechanics, though, of readiness, they look different across the armed forces. And what are your thoughts about how the Space Force looks in this equation? What does its readiness model look like? Are there models guardians can emulate from the other services? As far as the, the what the Space Force readiness looks like, per, personally, I'm, I won't grade them. Maybe when I was on the Hill, I would take that role or up in OSD. But what I would say is what's going to be and what is so important when thinking about readiness is really that integration of acquisitions, operators, intelligence professionals. And as the Space Force is building out that culture and you have these three major commands of Starcom, SC, and Spock, the operators, the trainers, the acquirers, working and integrating across each one of them. And one of them is not necessarily, I would say, in in charge. It's not it's just the operators in charge, at least the way I've thought about this. It's how they're all working together because they all have unique roles to solve the mission requirements and readiness is coming together for that. And why this is so important is because of where this conversation started at the beginning. And I believe it was Tim who really mentioned this about, and and Evan built upon it is this is a fundamental transformation from space as a support function to space as a warfighting domain in and of its own right. And the only way to make that transition is for all of these elements to work together and then have the readiness that's needed. Couldn't agree more, Steve. I think that when you start to look at, and the Space Force is going through this process now to be able to define force presentation and readiness and all those things. But I think that you need to tie that to the actual threat against, excuse me, the actual threat environment against whatever that current capability is. There can't be a fear that you are unable to accomplish a mission. You want to be able to get that out and be able to get that attention. But it has to be based off an objective measure of capability versus the threat. When we talk about what can we learn from other services, here's an interesting fact, right? The other services all of a sudden now are relearning, if you will, on how to focus on a pacing threat using proven combat capabilities. Even if they are last generation, the United States Space Force is taking on this threat with capabilities that were not designed for combat or not designed to be able to be operated in a contested environment. So they must grow in to that combat-ready force and that combat-ready capability as we talk about readiness and go forward. I want to keep pulling the thread here in readiness. And obviously, in the Army, Marines, Air Force, and Navy, we know their playbook. You can actually go physically drive, fly, or sail the, the relevant platforms in question. It's all really hands-on, and that's not true for the Space Force. And Major General Bratton noted this recently when he spoke here at Mitchell last month that Guardians interact with their domain entirely digitally. So you know, how will developing these digital ranges help Guardians prepare for future warfighting? 
I think it's an important point, and the guardians are operating virtually. They're interacting with machines, and they need the tools to support them. These machines are moving at thousands of miles per hour, and by machines, I'm saying satellites in space. So they need the tools like artificial intelligence, mixed reality, digital twins, being able to process this large amount of data and then make sense of it. So I think as we look to digital ranges of the future, having these technologies and then frankly bringing that together with capabilities on orbit like True Anomalies building out will be an important part of the future. Yeah, as you pointed out, Doug, the, the focal point of test and training is the range. And, and the range, by the way, is not just a place where you fly systems around and you learn lessons about the performance envelope of those capabilities and you push those systems to the limit. It's also where you build your culture. And General Saltzman has been vocal about this. This is where you build the practices and the lore and, and the traditions that are part of the fabric of confidence in the person that's fighting next to you and the confidence of commanders in their service members. And the reason that this is so important, it's not just, it's not just a sort of an abstract part of military tradition. It is actually part of the framework of risk-taking. And where that gets developed and where you get confidence to take smart risks and to push the envelope and understand when you have an advantage and press that advantage without overextending is on a range, is in practice. Every service needs this. They need a dedicated test and training range to prepare for real-world scenarios. The, the phrase is, you want to sweat in peacetime so you, can, you don't have to bleed in conflict. The Space Force faces some unique challenges here, right? They're building the airplane while they're flying it. We're thinking about this at True Anomaly beyond the digital range. The digital range is a really important aspect of this, but I can point to dozens of examples where the digital simulation environment didn't have the fidelity. And even if it had the fidelity, the simulation environment wasn't actuating those degrees of freedom of the models to be able to determine the failure modes of systems. So there is an element here of live operations and live system test and tactics that are really important. The other piece on, this, on the live side, which you can somewhat do on the digital side, but it is a different story when you have to wait for a system to receive a command on orbit, is the human factors of what we think space conflict might look like. It just takes a long time to conduct an operation in geosynchronous orbit if you're doing rendezvous and proximity operations. And that time scale of execution is different than what's happening in LEO, and it is fundamentally different than what is happening in the terrestrial domain. So syncing all of that up in the space domain with live capabilities in a digital range environment that's also synchronized with terrestrial action is an imperative. We envision a seamless environment to, to do all of this in, and we're going to have a really exciting announcement in the next couple of weeks about how True Anomaly is building for that controlled environment where guardians can come get after it and come learn those hard lessons. That's awesome. So I got to ask you guys, how are True Anomaly and Microsoft working together to support Space Force? Thanks so much for the question, Doug. It has been, let me just say, it's been a real honor to work with Steve Gatte over the last year. Steve has been an advisor and a friend and has taken risk in bringing True Anomaly into the conversation. But, and what's been so clear out of that experience with Steve and with Microsoft over the last year is that we're really cut 
from the same cloth. We share the same DNA of innovation. And so that's a great backdrop from which to do interesting things as a company, as True Anomaly. We are deployed on Microsoft Azure on GCC High. We are using the Azure Orbital Ground Station with Biosat RTE to execute all of our operations. Together, True Anomaly, Biosat, and Microsoft are really, I think, at the cutting edge of modeling simulation and visualization for Space Force, for Guardians, and for synthetic environments for range execution for live and digital training and for X development. So when we started Azure Space, we made the strategic decision not to build and launch our own satellites, but rather to partner with others who do and partner with great companies like True Anomaly. And what we're doing is you're seeing the best of our companies come together in new and differentiated ways, like bringing together what Evan had talked about with True Anomaly's spacecraft and modeling and simulation tools in our Azure Orbital Ground Infrastructure and artificial intelligence. And this is where true power ends up getting unlocked and we're able to bring these new capabilities ultimately to the Space Force and others. Excited to see what we're going to be doing next. Just a tremendous team there to work with and looking forward to the future. Uh, Guys, that's great. And I can't thank you enough for your time. We're at the end of our block here, but it's been great talking to all of you today. And we're really looking forward to looking to where this partnership heads and, and these concepts are going that we've been talking about. It's really exciting stuff. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Great to be with you today. Thanks so much. And Steve and Evan, always a pleasure. And with that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. And if you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to our Space Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas that you think we should explore further. And as always, you can join the conversation by following Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time.